talk about three things, the seismic shifts that are occurring in the world today, three acts that are gonna drive capital, and where we see money going to work. So we'll get right into it. Um, apologize for a little bit if you can't read that, but Zelensky really summed up, I think, the challenge that the world's facing right now because of not just the war, but the events of the last, I'd say, 12 years uh, since the great financial crisis forward. I think all those events are building up to where we are today. But what he said was, uh, Battle can't be frozen or postponed, and he's talking about the fight in, for Ukraine and Russia, but I think it's a bigger issue than that. It can't be ignored. The struggle will define our world, what world our children and grandchildren live in. And I don't think that's an overstatement at all. I think it may be an understatement. And I don't think we're really focusing on how much the world has changed the last couple of years, even though we're, we're living through it right now. And that's creating some challenges for us as investors. Uh, and Mark says, you know, there's a lot I got wrong, is a reason for it. You know, Steven, put the mic closer to your mouth there. Okay, there's a lot going on in the world. So let me get right into it. So I think the three big shifts that we're seeing are this cost of living increase um, that is not uh, a temporary change. We're in a reset. You think about Social Security went up 11%. The government raised defense spending, uh, the wages for the military, 4.5%. You're seeing wages going up throughout the board. You saw the Walmart increase, you saw other increases we're going through a higher cost of living around the world, and that's a major change that we have to get used to after being in zero interest rates and very low inflation. The second change is the one that Zelensky was referring to, which is this realignment of the world order around these blocks, whether it's uh, security blocks or economic blocks, that's gonna continue, and that is a major shift, and it's gonna drive capital flows in a way that we haven't thought about before. And at the same time, you're getting this reindustrialization of the global economy, which is playing out and it's going to create new beneficiaries and will really redefine where the investment opportunities lie in our view. Um, I think what's going on for the U.S. is these three legislative acts are driving capital flows and are creating the investment opportunities that we can all take advantage of. Starting with the Inflation Reduction Act, going through the Chips and uh, Science Act, and International Defense Authorization, these three acts are changing the way business is done around the world and where capital is moving, particularly around the areas of manufacturing uh, technology and the defense area. And defense is a bigger topic now. It's also energy, it's food, it's all the different types of security that we need. So where are we putting money to work today? For us, it's industrials and materials that are benefiting from these changes, particularly around defense and infrastructure, uh, and also the energy transition. It's this energy transition where you want to make sure you're owning both the fossil fuels and renewables. And one of the things that's really different is how interconnected these changes and transformations are because you need the materials and you need the industrial change that's going on to get the, the energy transition to work. And it's going to require science and technology to make the transition of fossil uh, from fossil to renewables uh, affordable. Same thing with healthcare. We need to get our healthcare costs down. Biotech is a big solution for that. And the U.S. is twice what the rest of the world is as a percentage of GDP spent on healthcare. And I think it's safe to say we probably don't have twice the quality of care. Um, dividends are still going to be important because those are the companies that have the strong balance sheets that can continue to pay. And you want to own quality in this environment. It's going to be a, you want to have the balance of the stuff that's going to give you the returns with the stuff that's going to give you a little bit of ballast in our view. And then we think there's going to be a number of special situations coming out of the dislocations around the global economy and the readjustment of those three big things that we're talking about that are going to create a bunch of new winners and it's going to require businesses to re reorient their business models. So I'm going to stop there and uh, just leave you with one last thought. The areas that we like uh, a lot in the energy industrials materials areas and industrials, you're looking at the top five defense companies have a combined market cap as of about two weeks ago of about $526 billion. The top five EP companies at uh, 3.38 and declining is uh, Chevron just announced a $75 billion buyback. And then you look at the top five steel companies and to make the industrialization and energy transition work, you need massive amounts of steel and you can buy the top five for $83 billion. How many people are overinvested in these areas is the question we're asking or how many can get that exposure? So we think these are some really interesting opportunities that are not the mainstream. So if you want to make money in this environment, you got to do what other people aren't in our view. So I'm going to turn it over to Bill. Thanks, Stephen. Okay. And Bill, maybe you could do a better introduction of yourself than I did. Oh, sure. Um, 
Anyway, well, we're getting the slides set up. Uh, I'm Bill Eichler. Uh, I'm chief investment, former chief investment officer for two family offices and currently a uh, trustee uh, for a public pension plan uh, locally. So been around in the investment world quite a bit. Kind of a unique background since I've been an asset owner, an asset advisor, and an asset manager. So uh, with, those, with, with those three hats on, it's always tough to follow a student, but I will give it a try here. And hopefully I'll hit the right button. Thank you. Okay, so uh, in terms of where we've been and we haven't been here for a long, long time is the inflation environment. And the chart that, that you see up here goes all the way back to 1872. And you can see that in inflation was very spiky for many, many years up until uh, kind of mid, if you will, mid-century last year, or back in, in, in the 1900s. We haven't seen this level of inflation, which is at the far right-hand side of the, um, of the chart here, for about 40 years. So there are a lot of people out there who weren't even born uh, when we had it. And the last time that we were above 4%, just as an example, was back in the 70s and 80s. And that was a rather long and protracted time. Uh, I was around then. I remember going to the store with my mother and actually watching prices change every week. Um, it was it was a little scary. So right now we're in this, in this peak area of inflation. And taking a closer look, the chart on the left is the CPI, and the chart on the right is the PCE. On the CPI in red, you have the headline. The blue line is the core. So the core is X food and energy. You can see how scary it's been over this short period of time since COVID. The rapid rise, you know, from essentially no inflation to peaking at 9.1%. It's been just incredible. And I think very much a shock to everyone and the markets. Fortunately, we're on the downside of that. Things are, are coming off rather rapidly. You see almost a, a V-shape beginning to appear. The good thing also with regard to the chart on the right with the PCE, that's the one that the Fed looks at. And you can see that the components, which are those smaller lines down uh, near the bottom and the overall are coming down rather rapidly. So relatively good news and, and the trajectory seems to be holding. Here's an interesting chart from Bank of New York. And this was done probably around July, August of last year, it came out as their fourth quarter report in terms of where do they expect inflation to be going uh, with regard to the consumer price index. So what I did is I superimposed those two circles and you can see that the lower one at the cross point, I, I, need, I need John Nigerian's height so that I can get out there and like point to the chart so I could actually get it to, and okay, oh, I do have a mouse, okay. Oops, uh-oh, <laughs> this is dangerous. All right, I'm not gonna use the mouse. So anyway, you can see the, the, lower, the lower crosshair right there, that's where we are right now, at around 6% you know, on, the, on the last print. That corresponds you know, to their, uh, either something breaks or a softish landing. Hopefully it's gonna be more of a softish landing. But we are not at the global recession which is interesting because for those of you who will be here Monday, uh, I'll be going over the survey that we've done for the community. And it's fascinating to see what the opinions of the community are relative to some of these uh, data points here. So we're not in the global recession, but we're more online with, I'm hoping, softest landing as opposed to something breaks. Taking a look at the yield curve, uh, pretty interesting shape. Uh, this was as of earlier this week. But you can see that the short rates are, are peaking. Uh, the curve is highly inverted. And this is interesting. The 10-year is the low point on the curve. When have we seen that before? It's pretty darn rare. And the spread between the six months and the 10-year is really in un almost unprecedented territory at 100, minus 140 basis points. So you have the significant down. What is, what is this, well, before I get to the last bullet point, what is this sort of telling us is that the market expectations are that we're not going to be seeing the kind of inflation that has been scary that we've seen you know, in the last number of months. Because the further out, if you saw that, the curve would be you know, much larger up. But also significantly is that we are very much 
still underwater as far as real rates are concerned, and I'll get to that in a second. But before we leave rates and treasury curves, what I wanted to do was give you four curves plus today in terms of what did the yield curves look like under various inflation environments. So you can see the green one, which is the oldest, going back to 1988, where the CPI that year was at 4.2%. So we're, we're headed there, we're not there yet. But you can see, it, it's, it's a little bit hard to see the, the numbers on, on the side, but the, um, the short end of the curve is down at 6.5%. So we are clearly not there. Think about it, 6.5% to just over 9% out of the 30-year normally shaped upward sloping curve at a, at a CPI of 4.2. Next, uh, next one is down in the, uh, the blue curve at 2005. There, the CPI was at 3.4. There again, you see uh, slightly upward sloping, normal curve, but definitely flatter and lower. The, um, the low point there is at 3%. And then finally, under you know, QE and financial repression, you can see the impact of the Fed actions just tremendously depressing the, the vast majority of the curve. And also, the vast majority of that curve is underwater with regard to real rates because the CPI at that point in time was 2.2%. So you have to go all the way out almost to the 20 year before you get to real rates of return. As opposed to 1988, you almost had a 200 basis point positive real spread against CPI at the short end of the curve. So now you can see sort of that thin purple line that is today's, or this week's curve superimposed. You see, once again, highly inverted. The question that's on the table is, where do we go from here? Are we going to see a 1988 curve? Are we going to see a 2012 curve? I'm thinking we're going to see maybe 2005. So you'll see, again, I wish I had John's height. You're going to see the, the, the lower end of the curve coming down, the upper end of the curve going up. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it to my other colleagues to opine. They probably have a lot better information on that. But you can just see, see by history where potentially we could have with various scenarios. And you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for the blue curve. We'll see what happens. So the implication of that, we've seen what happens when you have nominal, extremely low rates of interest, is that it pushes everybody out on the risk curve to risky assets. One could say the same thing about low levels of real rates of return. Same thing, it's gonna push investors out to get more compensation for risk on, for their assets. And Stevens had a great point uh, that we've talked about in terms of the difference, and he mentioned this early on, that if, if, we, if it was like another 400 basis points, it'd be crazy. So, but, P, but investors have to think about their asset allocation in, in, in these in, environments and that the absolute levels of inflation and the rates, not just the real rate, is gonna matter because people will perceive it differently. And your movements into what you will demand for risk premiums will follow from that. And so, and, and, and maybe further detail, is that the cross-sectional risk premiums across assets are gonna be different depending upon where rates and how they move. So, just wrapping up, um, I think the demand is going to be, you know, much more scrutiny. You're going to look harder at business cases, more demanding analysis, and as Stephen has said many times, you're going to need to pick your spots much more carefully. Thank you. Hi, everybody, and I'm actually going to express my views here. I'm in a private capacity, not in a Moody's capacity, so, but I'll bring some Moody's statistics. I just want to make sure that I have a very regulated job. I cannot talk on behalf of my firm. Um, but Look, I think I agree pretty much 100%, you said. <laughs> yeah. um, we're in a very challenging um, situation, and I think from a both macro-political perspective, um, the China comment, obviously Dallas is one. Actually, just to give you statistics, we are pretty much negative for corporates, um, negative output for corporates in North America, negative for EMEA. Um, China very negative and then the only actually area that we are stable is APAC outside of China 
So a lot of what you think about what the, the trends that we're talking about, supply chain you know, uh, issues, is that are benefiting a lot of non-China Asian countries. You know, these moves, India is obviously one that's taking, um, it's really capitalized on it. You have Singapore, you know, very aggressively becoming in trend. So in terms of the macro shifts that are happening, they're definitely happening. China is having an issue um, from a property, pers you know, property bubbles perspective that has to unwind. They have an issue in demographics. Uh, it everybody thinks about the billion plus people in China, but actually the projections are in 20 years, we're gonna have more population in China. I'm not sure if everybody's aware of that, but that's the, that's the statistical prognosis. So they have a serious issue and how they're gonna land, that's, uh, and I'm not a Chinese expert, but I have to be sufficient with the global view, you know, on that. But when you come back to, to North America, I'm a credit person by training and I cannot give you investment advice. I am happy to talk throughout the session in terms of my concerns, and my concern is corporate leverage. Actually, consumer leverage is not a concern. Consumer leverage was an issue post-financial crisis, major one. Uh, the consumers have pretty nicely delivered. And, and I'll tell you statistics that um, the lowest income uh, uh, borrowers who never had more than um, kind of 60 days savings, they had six months of savings and more as a result of the uh, support, government support happening on back of COVID. Uh, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan, on the call two weeks ago on earnings call said that they there's still savings remaining in the lowest quotient of the population, but that's going to dissipate probably by the summer. And the only reason I'm mentioning this to you, not that you know maybe you're philanthropic, you want to help these people, good for you, but I'm talking more in economic context what it means for demand, and demand is already weakening, uh, and the lowest cohort who is kind of your consumer-driven economy. Um, has not entered um, the job market in a, in a way that we were all expecting, obviously, post-COVID. So if you look at the inflation numbers, I just looked at the most recent ones as well, slightly different statistics, but broadly, inflation is coming down very nicely in the goods, energy already corrected, all goods, pretty much agricultural goods corrected. The problem is services. So service is actually very high still. So I'm kind of connecting the dots between the lowest quotient of trying to get a waiter in a restaurant or hotel services. I mean, we know how hotels have been, you know, one of the upside actually of the commercial real estate side, particularly in the South Belt. So, but the problem is staffing levels. And when the lowest quotient of, the, um, of, of folks still have savings left, that typically never had savings. This, this crowd never had savings post-financial crisis. Okay, this is the first time these people ever had three, six, nine months of savings was during COVID. That shouldn't happen. I'm not talking in a, in a you know, philanthropic way. We're talking about economically should not happen. It's it's a it is a distortion of normal um, kind of Adam Swift type of you know Adam Smith type rules of the economy. So that's why we're the service economy is where it is. So we're still running with that inflation. So when the Fed now is looking at, okay, the CPI numbers, and they're looking at that sort of distortion of, okay, we are having a correction here on the good side and energy side, housing is still elevated and service sector, the two, the two areas. Are we, have we achieved the housing normalization? I mean, I bought a place in Naples. How many people bought their second, third home in 2020 or 2021? Can somebody please raise hand? Okay, I bought mine in December of 2020. So my place in, um, in Naples appreciated one and a half times between December of 2020 and June of 2021. Okay, still six months. So it was complete luck, you know, obviously. But that's, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of that and housing is gonna stay elevated. So the Fed is not, there is, if you read, if you read through the tea leaves of where the Fed is gonna stop, they're gonna look at housing and affordability. And they're gonna be looking at um, basically the uh, kind of unemployment mix. And our, if you think about kind of Moody's view is that we're gonna stop after March at a roughly, you know, 5%, you know, 4.75 in a base rate. Um, and unemployment is gonna peak around 4.4% later this year. But if it doesn't, the market has not priced that. So the market has priced 4.7 to 5, and any CPI good story, and any good unemployment story, which we've got a lot over the last two weeks, the market gets so excited. 
So I would be very wary of what the public markets are doing and what are they, because the Fed is not united. Kind of my job is to interpret what the Fed governors are talking, and there is a, not a united story there. There is a lot of hawks still uh, in the Fed. And then when you keep that in mind, what worries me back to the story of leverage, consumer not as much, but the, the corporate leverage is crazy. And I'll give you statistics in terms of um, how much, how bad it is. So we have, you know, the typical investment grade corporate before, you know, financial crisis was single A rated. A typical investment grade corporate these days in terms of cohort is uh, A or triple B, which is borderline investment grade. So there is a much less cushion in the investment grade world, which means much more fallen angels. So if you're in a real money pension fund world uh, that has to invest in investment grade, you have a big risk of fallen angels, obviously much more than pre-financial crisis, which means that when ones have to sell, there's a much more. So that kind of triple B cohort, I would be very concerned about because it's, uh, you know, it's challenging. And then what else has changed a lot of you are in private markets here. Um, you know, the private equities, the kind of the alternatives are the norm in any pension fund, in any um, you know, endowment, etc. And if you look at the leverage, I, I'm kind of the street expert on private credit, let me say that, that's the only one thing I would say, and is if you look at the private credit stuff, it was the year of 2021 and 2022, is the year of the biggest growth of private credit we've seen. Uh, but if you look at their portfolio companies, and I'm not talking the small ticket stuff here, five to 10, I'm talking about the kind of up the game middle market, at 6% baseline rate, more than 70% of those portfolio companies have less than one times interest coverage. So I'll leave you with that. You're gonna, you're gonna drop the mic on that one? Yeah. Hard after follow. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria, for introducing us to Helen. So maybe kind of, um, I'll start by introducing myself since this is my first time here. So Mark, thank you for inviting me. Um, and Mark, if you didn't have me on the panel, I was on the fence about coming, so that was a good, and pickleball was the other thing. That's I thought you said you had me at pickleball. No, you had me at pickleball, but yeah. I was going to come tomorrow and okay. not today, so you had me at this. Okay. Um, but so oh, I- you get something to say then. That's good. Exactly. So I work at uh, BlackRock's OCIO business, which is not very well known for a reason. I think last year in our earnings call, for the first time, Larry mentioned the words OCIO, uh, but it's getting there. I think we. It stands for. Well, it stands for outsourced CIO. So, look at the consultant model. Um, it's a part of the consultant model where instead of advisory, all you are doing is more discretionary management. For you know, most of our clients are pensions um, and kind of middle market pensions smaller endowment foundations, some families that really want to outsource a piece of their book or all of their book, depending on you know what they're doing. And I think the biggest difference is it's all very customized. So every, you've seen one OCIO client, you've seen one OCIO client. It's, um, you know, everyone has special uh, circumstances and needs, so you really have to be tailored uh, to them. And I mean, we've seen, we work with, so I don't know, Mark has been kind of, saying this term to everyone, so we work with um, a lot of asset managers, uh, mostly larger uh, fund managers across public and private, and invest in 400 funds today on behalf of um, 156 clients globally. So, you know, I think the kind of, there are a lot of views and um, th that we come across and we truly look at asset allocation as a very important part of uh, what we're developing. So. You know, from that, I think what I'll maybe talk about is one story, one surprise, and maybe end with an outlook. Um, so this, the, this reminds you of how you talk, Jack. You hear this? But watch how she's going to execute it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with one story that summarizes. I didn't hear. It's okay. Keep okay. going. Keep okay. Going. I'll start with one story that kind of summarizes what everybody's been uh, talking about in terms of the inflation views. And this is not my story. Um, there is a kind of well-known PM at BlackRock called Bob Miller, who retired last year. And when we did our economic forum, uh, he's basically hired the whole fixed income team, sec number two to the greeter. Uh, he left with this story, and, and everybody found it very funny coming from him. Maybe people won't find it funny coming from me. But he basically looked at the room and asked, so how many of you had a gummy? Have had a gummy? 
Well, there are gummies and there are gummies. There are gummies. There are gummies. I think we're talking about the tame gummies. <laughs> Lots of people raise their hands. Um, mostly the younger crowd. Carry on. And so he said, you know, when you have a gummy, um, it doesn't hit you until a couple of hours after. So you have more gummies. And then, you know, a couple hours later, you're, you're not feeling so well. And, you know, it's, it's not a good thing to do. And he said, this is what the Fed has been doing. And this is what central banks have been doing. Uh, they took a gummy. They took, they, they you know. Um, they raised rates. They were called out for being behind the curve. So they raised rates again. And now you're starting to see the effect. And now it's all kind of coming um, too much gummy. <laughs> so look, I mean, I think to the point that Bill was making, like you're starting to see PC inflation down to 2%. And Fed has no reason to continue on the path that they have, but you know, part of their challenge is building credibility and managing expectations. So you could see them continue on this path just so that they are seen as credible for any future inflation. But at this point, from you know, from what we know, they look at there is no reason for them to. And I think that leads to, you know, I think the kind of biggest, so, so one of the other things that I'll talk about is we, um, we have started using GPT and chat GPT to summarize a lot of the manager views that we get considering that we're looking at 150 managers. One of the themes that came out was invest in bonds, uh, invest in fixed income. And you know, the kind of, that as an asset class has really not been on people's radar. So from an asset allocation standpoint, we are really saying, look, 40-60 is the new 60-40. Uh, look at areas of fixed income like structured credit, you know, um, the areas that have really been ignored, right? So even looking at kind of the public-private, like Anna mentioned, high-yield bonds are yielding 8%, and private credit, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you kind of have to look at the delta, and at a time when, for a lot of investors, they really kind of needed the liquidity last year when, you know, if they overinvested in private markets and got capital calls and then had to sell at the wrong time or go into secondaries, people have realized that there is a cost to not having liquidity and, and are going into liquidity. Um, and I think in terms of the surprise, so that was the story. The surprise to me has been, I was really expecting uh, private equity and VC valuations to have come down a lot by now. Uh, but I was looking at the Goldman study uh, that came out on Q3 numbers and private equity valuations are only down 2-3%. Uh, mm -hmm. We see growth you know, slightly more, but in a year when global public markets were down 25%, that's not a lot. So you know, if you're going to have a soft landing, um, I don't really see that kind of recessionary expectation where valuations would come crashing down on you to really be realized. So that makes it quite an attractive asset class. And one area that we're looking at is the whole spectrum of public-private funds. So within you know, credit and fixed income, there's a lot of multi-sector funds that are coming to market. Uh, within equities, we're seeing a lot of public-private funds that are trying to capture the whole spectrum instead of making investors choose the allocation. And then in terms of outlook, the last thing I'll talk about is emerging markets, since we touched a lot on the US. Um, when I was at the, uh, last year I went to my first IMF annual meeting after three years. And, oh great, <laughs> well next time we should coordinate. Um, and David Malpas, who was such an amazing speaker, and I saw him like, there, um, really kind of talked very passionately about the cost COVID has had on emerging markets. So their debt um, servicing costs have gone up because of rates and inflation. Um, having a strong dollar has been punishing. And you know they were really affected by COVID and the recovery hasn't really been that smooth. So I am very bullish on emerging markets with weakening dollar. Um, and the fact that you know even despite the fact that these kind of triple threats really should have damaged emerging markets more, uh, there's really been resilience in that space. So, and you're starting to see, I mean, I'll, I'll call out, um, I grew up in India, so I call out India. You know, that's one area that's really a bright spot where you know, with kind of a, a lot of investors getting out of China, they're looking for alternatives, and India is really emerging as that alternative in terms of its inclusion 
in broader indices and in, in the recognition of kind of the demographics as well as the, the more capital-friendly policies that the government has. So my outlook really is, you know, invest in India if you're looking at country investing, uh, but emerging markets as a whole are going to have a good year. What do you think about China? Let's go, let's talk about China. Me or somebody else? You. <laughs> so, I I'm mean... Over, I'm over here right now. Oh, you, oh yeah. yeah. I was like, did the question come from here? Is it um, Sorry. Look, I mean, like, China's gonna have a, I mean, the, the impact to the market that you've seen from the reopening, that trade is already done. So it's a, it is faster than expected reopening, but most um, growth expectations for China are lower from here on now. And I mean, if you look at kind of the competitive advantage that China had, you know, in kind of the in, in semiconductors or supply chain, I mean, I think with the policies that the U.S. is enacting in the Semiconductor Act, that's going to be eroded. So I'm kind of struggling to see what really is the growth driver for China, you know, that keeps it at the level that it has been the past 20 years. Um, and other markets are going to come in and, and try to supersede that. So I don't know if anybody else has anything to add, but I'm not as bullish. I mean, we were negative negative in China this year, and we still have negative outlook, but actually the most recent reopenings uh, revised our economic projections up. So I think around 5%. It used to be 35 it's around 5% now. But they need six, as we know. But long term? For 2023. What about long term for China? I'm just going to say my personal view. I'm long U.S. The tilt down here in me. Here we go. Apart from India, which other country in Asia do you find, or Africa, do you find attractive? I'm not a country expert. Um, India was my personal view, but I mean, if I, you know, um, I think I would say regionally. So regionally, definitely parts of LATAM, um, kind of Southeast Asia, um, are definitely attractive. So, you know, I would say we're kind of staying away from Eastern Europe still in terms of the, you know, the, the, there are a lot of headwinds and like unknowns in that space. Um, but within Africa, I mean, there's definitely a lot of opportunities. Um, I'll have to come back to you on the specifics. I don't have the more on top of my head. Yeah, I, I, I would agree in terms of uh, Asia x China. Southeast Asia, you know, really interesting, especially with all the the near shoring uh, that's coming in or the French shoring. Um, I, I, I think, I hopefully you all didn't miss the import of Anna's statement with regard to the demographics in China. It is a huge, huge thing. It hasn't reared its ugly head just yet, but it's coming. But in the meantime, I think that if if she can navigate himself back to the kind of environment pre-COVID, where there was just tremendous amount of entrepreneurial spirit going on inside of China. If he's going to allow that to come back, then I think that there's there's a great case to be made. But in the meantime, I'm cautious, cautious there. Yeah. I, I think uh, how China re-engages with the rest of the world, with US and Europe, is really the swing factor for the global economy this year. And it's off to a start where they need the economic activity, so they're gonna, looks like they might be more friendly towards and more open towards it. You know, that's what you're hearing with Yellen and her counterparts. So I think that's a big swing factor that's gonna determine where we go from here. The reopening has helped the US and Europe considerably navigate uh, this start to the year. And I think that's one of the big surprises for me as well. Uh, it's hard to, it was hard to time how she was gonna exit and what the implications are gonna be. And I'm quite frankly surprised that we haven't had uh, more infections that are crippling and maybe leading to lockdowns, but uh, I don't know if he can lock down again. So I think that's going to be a, be a real challenge. But like Europe, they've benefited from the warmer weather and the lower energy prices too. So that's going to help them. So if you remember our lunch, and we do a Thursday lunch in New York, whenever I'm in New York, it's three times a uh, week. There's a bull case made that she did all this for politics. He was supporting certain things. Russia, beyond, that uh, he could shift. He's, he's, he's providing this uh, outreach to Australia and the US. Because 
every year, what's the, uh, because it was 2020, um, with, the new, with the new president coming in, we have this uh, report of the scenarios. There are five scenarios. By the way, Stephen, before the war in, in Ukraine created, he, you, you provided five scenarios. We said there's no way that Putin actually attacks. We have black swan, white swan deep dives coming up, by the way. And one of them, you can see, you can't see it, but it's China, Taiwan. Does China, what happens? Who's the best, who are some of the best people to know that? But Japan has doubled their military budget. Korea, we are, we are more aligned, NATO, than ever before. The block has formed. We said there could be enlightenment or blocks. And here we are, Kissinger was right. We're in blocks. But quantum computing, $100 billion from China versus our meager amount, China GPT and all that. So just interesting dynamics, but we're in Naples. We're gonna shift gears. Are we on? That's our first, that's our, like, the press sec, the, the press uh, for Rob, Rob Colarina is gonna ask, but I wanna have, I wanna switch to Naples in a second. But go ahead, Rob, I like interaction. Go. Thanks. Davika, to the extent you can comment, to the extent you can comment, just even just generally um, uh, on ESG, just given the dynamics with BlackRock um, and some of the sort of the major asset managers on the ESG treatment allocation from some of the uh, you know, couple of large state pension funds, um, how is how is that dynamic changing uh, the directional mandate by you all? Um, and also, in, I was at something earlier this week that one of the northern managers commented, we wanted to stick to sort of the BlackRock position and you know with a letter and then just a quick follow-up, Steve, I think this first letter seemed distressed on one of your slides. Um, are you guys, is that distressed um, debt or are you guys looking at distressed equity? Actually, it's really a reflection of the distress that Anna was talking about with corporate credit. Um, I think corporations are in two camps and most of them are in the camp that she was referencing at 75% got way over their skis and this interest rate move as bad as it is for governments if you're a company with high debts that 4% change is could be deadly so I think that's going to create distress where they're going to sell off units and that that um, opportunity to pick up stuff for the companies that are sitting on cash is going to be a big opportunity what's um, the average duration of that corporate debt you know, typically, it's a two and a half years average duration. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, a, a single B corporate um, that had to go to market, very few of them. By the way, the, to give you a sense, the leverage finance market was the worst year ever since 2007. 80% down insurance in 2022. Um, it's a slow start. For 2023, so it's not going to, which means the private credit is still going to have a pretty good year for the beginning. The problem is going to be that people, you know, firms who had to refinance who were in the single B or worse cohort, they refinanced at 13 and a half percent. You know, deals were done at like 11, 12, 13. So if you were able to, and again, it goes back to the picking the right assets, cash flows, was it a structural program versus something that's fixable that you can outsource and, and, and kind of beautify it? I mean, you have to be a credit picker here, but it's very ugly. And the problem is going to be that uh, I think you, know, you talked about sort of where PE is now and the valuations, and it hasn't corrected at all. But if you look at Blackstone's results, uh, you know, they just published results this week. You know, they're down, obviously, on the private equity portfolio, um, you know, 5 10%. But that is, people are saying, uh, are those valuations even still realistic? The, the reason why the leverage finance market is not functioning is because they can, uh, I think there's a 20 to 25% difference of valuations between buyers and sellers. And they've closed it by five to seven. So there is a way to go here. And uh, I think this is where the opportunities are gonna be. But the question was originally to you. Yeah, I can answer the ESG question. So I'd say, I mean, from a ESG investing standpoint, there are kind of two threads. Um, one is, you know, you kind of look back and realize that if your strategy was essentially about investing X energy, uh, then you're really driven by the energy market. So you kind of see the cyclical performance of your ESG portfolio just be driven by where the Umber commodity index is. Um, and so last year, a lot of sustainable strategies, so-called sustainable strategies really haven't done well. 
and that's kind of been the entire factor because they are, you know, no matter what fancy way they have of computing um, sustainability, that's essentially what they're doing. The other side that I think is the shift that's happening is with, so I was at actually at a, a Milken Institute conference early January, which was entirely centered on the Infrastructure Reduction Act. And they, they actually had somebody at, at, um, from, like a, from the Florida state government on the panel um, who was quite bullish about the Infrastructure Reduction Act and you know, the kind of impact that it'll have on clean energy sources. Um, so there's a lot of investment that's happening or could happen in the US uh, to the extent that Europe is looking at it and rushing to pass uh, you know, kind of their version of, the, of that um, in order to kind of really spearhead renewables and, and clean energy tech. So I think that space is really going to explode and really go beyond solar and wind, which has been kind of the focus. So you're going to see more new technologies and new ways of accessing energy sources because really, I mean, that's kind of where a lot of the geopolitical events, at least in the last year or so, have centered around. Uh, it's kind of the, the price of gas for Europe and, you know, kind of Russia exporting uh, some of that to Asia, kind of, you know, making kind of the energy dependence as something that everybody, no matter where they're on the political spectrum, is something everybody's focused on. So I think that's kind of the, you know, in, I mean, but outside of that, there is just so many views, right? So there is a schism and, you know, how we get out of the schism and the political divide is kind of secondary to, well, what are the solutions? Where are the investors going? Um, I mean, I would say like a lot of the investing is happening from investors outside of US, so mostly Canadian pensions and European pensions. Uh, but you are starting to see kind of more, you know, uh, interest at least in the US in terms of kind of what are these spaces that are attractive. And to that point, uh, on Monday in Miami, we have uh, some pensions, uh, their perspectives on how, because they have a mandate, to your point. It's more than an interest. Now, Europe has a mandate, no, no fossil, 2035, we'll see how that goes. Um, but I just flashed on the screen. But we're in Naples, and I wanted to get the, the zeitgeist of Naples. And Cheryl, you were here last year, and she said, in, in 2021, to your point, Anna, the number of Florida, new Florida residents, uh, I know it was like, I want to say 600, 700,000, but you'll, I'll give you the. Well, well, in Naples, not only the school system, by the way, Naples is not a fun place to live if you have small children, but even with that fact, 7,000 new, what I heard was. I might, I might well, but, but we, we like difference. <laughs> okay, no, 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 in the number or the fun place to live? In, in which, what, what would you do? In the, in the number or the fun place to live? Uh, I've heard 7,000 uh, applications for the elementary schools in Naples. Oh, yeah. I, I thought you meant the quality of the schools. I thought you no, no, no. The quality of schools are phenomenal. They are. What I'm trying to say is that people uh, have not considered Naples as a retirement community. It's not okay, been considered well, as a living with kind of middle school children, absolutely. which I have. But there are 7,000 families that moved in during COVID in kind of the, the public school system. Well, we went from an average age of 64, I think it was, to 42 mm -hmm. in three years, four years. So, so the average age has taken, it, it, the infrastructure can't possibly get to catch up with that. So so last year, Cheryl hosted us, because uh, their, their development company really has their fingers on the pulse for many years of Naples and things, your, your graph pr probably built those spikes, you know, Naples had a spike here, uh, not just Naples, but it, how many, have you seen it this year? Well, um, by the way, I'm Cheryl Deering with John R. Wood. I see a few um, familiar faces, I'm not sure. Uh, John R. Wood, Christie's International Real Estate. Um, this year we hooked up with Christie's, which is re-inventing re, uh, itself after 250 years. So. <laughs> Um, they waited until I got to be that age so they could do that. Uh, in any case, um, this year we've had uh, a COVID variant. Uh, we've had uh, the worst labor shortage we've ever seen in a town that is based basically on real estate. We have supply chain issues which are still out there, not quite as bad as they were two years ago. 
Um, we have, and then somebody said, let's give them Ian. So we got hit with this nice hurricane in September, September 28th. And uh, the world pretty much came to a stop uh, from there until just about the end of the year. Uh, so, for example, uh, John Arwood Real Estate is the number one real estate company in the southwest region here, basically Lee County and, and, uh, and Collier County. And uh, so we went from, uh, in four years, we went from 2.8 billion in sales to 3.2 billion to 5.8 billion in 2021 uh, to 4.2 billion last year because we had that last quarter that was kind of taken out, um, uh, took our feet out from under us. So <clears throat> the, the growth is unprecedented. Um, I've been here since 1985 and I thought we saw a lot of growth since then. Um, but we basically, two years ago, didn't have much more land to develop in Naples or the greater Naples area. So we all started moving north into the eastern section of Fort Myers. You might have heard of, heard of Babcock Ranch, uh, which has, I think, 15,000 homes. And they're a, they're a green community with uh, solar. And they have, they've been in national news because they survived the hurricane so well. Uh, a lot of us did, by the way. The beach communities obviously got wiped out pretty badly. Um, but going north, and as we all were moving north, we're up into Charlotte County now. John R. Wood went from six offices to 26 offices in three years. Five of them got wiped out, they're back online already. Uh, Sanibel, Pine Island, some of the outer islands. So <clears throat> that's kind of the, the history of just dollar figures. Uh, we always do well when the stock market goes down. This year and last year we did well and the stock market was continuing to go up. I mean, it has fluctuated. You guys know that market a lot better than I do. Um, but we still have probably, and this is anecdotal, I don't really know, but somewhere between 60 and 65% of our sales are cash sales. So it's really hard to understand what the, the rates are doing to us. I know what they're doing in some of the lower end developments that I have. Um, I run the new construction division and there aren't a lot of uh, new construction developments in Naples and the greater Naples area because there's no land. <coughs> so, uh, but with Ian, everything has been revived in this area because a lot of the, the um, properties are now being torn down. Um, they're either torn down or the, uh, the properties are being rebuilt. Uh, we're having major governmental issues because there are laws about you can't, you can't rebuild at the same elevation if you're rebuilding more than 50% of the home. The value of the home, well the home values are not there, the land is the value. So it's really kind of out of whack and it's becoming a big issue. Um, <clears throat> so I have three developments down here that I currently yep. take care of. Can I ask a question One in, from mm -hmm. a kid from Ohio? Mm -hmm. What the governor of Ohio tells us is that if you really need people, like the, the, you, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Labor. The, they, they have to commute an hour away. Mm -hmm. Worse than it's an hour. It sort of hits, hits sort of the, 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 sort of the part of the economy that's not quite included mm -hmm. in all this. And is there a, a demo, you know, and then we have the immigration. Mm -hmm. Put that to the side. Is there, a, is, how are you solving for, for this? Well, it's not, it's not being solved fast and enough. Yeah, the, the local officials will continue to say, we need housing, we need housing, we need housing. And then they will continue to get worse at putting up obstacles in front of developers so they can't do housing. And that's exactly what's happened and it's still happening. We have our labor pool for South, uh, South Naples. We have a development halfway to Marco. Our labor pool comes from Punta Gorda and um, uh, Lehigh Acres, which is probably an hour and 45 minutes. They no longer have to come and work on our site because there's 26,000 open permits in Lee County. So they can stop in Lee County and work on the construction for probably twice the amount of money because they're working with insurance checks. So we have, we have a site that usually has 30 or 40 workers on it any given time. The other day we had three. Uh, we can't we can't get them built, which means 
my sales are 53 sales ahead of construction, which means we're going to end up underwater because the materials are going up and we've already sold at a price. So it's serious. Yes, sir. Last year, uh, I asked the question about cash buyers versus not. Has that changed much? Even 65%, I don't think, was the number you were quoting last year for yeah, down uh, here. I personally think it's gotten higher in cash buyers. We have an awful lot of people, and this really is anecdotal, in the, in the high end. A lot of people at 65, 70 years old, 60 years old, actually it's getting younger, um, buying properties for their kids that just got out of college that don't necessarily have jobs. So all of a sudden the $600,000 and $800,000 market, which is considered our mid-range, um, that market's being eaten up by, by those, those people parking money. Um, and it's, it's probably estate money, but they're spending it now. Um, and like I said, it's, it, we're not seeing a lot of, and you know, without, without PERS approval and Fannie Mae, which they've also made more difficult, it's difficult to do a lot of sales that aren't cash. So, sure. The Four Seasons, the Rosewood, I mean, starting price, 14, 17 million. Yeah, those are all gone. All gone. Is there more room for those kind of properties? Uh, I would have said no. Naples market. Yeah, um, we actually walked away from that project to begin with, because we still believe it's better to be the second agent in, not the first agent. Yeah. But there have been reservations on that property. There's been a couple of uh, contracts, mm -hmm. and the city has now opened up their permit. They're giving them hell. They're still giving them hell. So they're under construction with a full permit and full site approval, and after the hurricane. The city has now, and they're in the city. The city has now said your drainage wasn't good enough, and they've held up some of their construction. It just so uh, if you are a high-end buyer, uh -huh. okay, and you didn't buy the 70 million to wait for three years, right? Like four years now, right? Do you think it's, it was a good decision because that's going to be resell at 15? Um, I I don't think the high-end buyers that are in those sales are the ones that are going to end up closing on them. I think they'll resell them, and that's happened before. So, so where are we going to resell them? Where are they going to go? They'll go to the new stuff that's being built. We didn't expect to have anything. So now, Coquina Sands, Moorings, downtown Naples, there's a lot of things that are being knocked down. Yeah. Uh, somebody just bought, a developer just bought two mid-rise 1980 buildings on the beach. I don't know how he assembled everybody, but everybody had to come to the same decision to sell. And I think there were about 50 people in there. Bought them for $52 million for the land. For so, two small so buildings. So if you're in the market for ultra high net, like mm -hmm. high property mm -hmm. on, on the water, do I wait? Um, it, it, this next year, I think 24 is going to be a huge year. 23 is, is settling out. Yeah. I have one more voice of the Naple family office community. You've heard all this. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I was going to switch gears, actually. Um, I'm Barb Quashis. I, I was 27 years CFO for the Terry Kohler family up in Kohler, Wisconsin. You might recognize the name from your toilet bowls um, or having gulped at some of the fine resorts. Um, sure. Um, I, I was the enterprise gal. That's how I met the callers, head of Stinson Fan Prize. I studied accounting, international assistant Spanish, had a fly at Fly Fisheries Art in Chile, and we grew a global sailing brand, North Sales, the engine boat, the DAC Southern Spars, New Zealand, the rigging, Terry's MIT grad, pushing them, and um, retired Air Force captains, so always pushing the envelope on technology, peoples, and process. So that's what we did. And so I was the. Um, second-hand gal behind this great entrepreneur making sure his blind spots were covered because he moved very quickly. Um, but having had that experience, we sold the sailing company to a London-based firm back in 2016. I work with the family as well to develop the next gen. Governance, very important for free enterprise. Those of you that are trying to buy family health businesses or work in a family health business, it's not easy. And people think if you have wealth, it's easy, but it's not. So I, I love to support 
the families that are creating the wealth for the investments that all of us want to buy. And I am long U.S. with you. <laughs> because I believe in free enterprise. Are you long Naples? I am long Naples because um, what I, I, I moved here two years ago. Um, and I now work for a multi-family office called Crescent out of Chicago. And, but we have a trust company. And, um, so I come along entrepreneurs. I, um, you know, we fill in as a family CFO wherever space is needed. We come along people who are already professional investors. But do you think Naples is innovating? Is there innovation? Okay, so this is where I'm coming. So, re-enterprise gal. Um, I was just at a next gen, they do presentations where they bring in people who started companies speaking to FGCU who has an entrepreneurial center. And so this area, what I love about it is, uh, you know, I call it the 1% of the 1% and I'm the service provider to these 1% of the 1% because they call themselves previously important people because if you can afford to live here, you've done, you've done well someplace else. But the lovely thing about the, um, the people that move here and make this their community lovely, quaint as it is, though dealing with schools and traffic and house prices and service workers, they need the um, Americans Club that, like Kohler had, that supported these people and now it's a five-star resort. That's, that's kind of what they need here. Um, but these entrepreneurs, previously important people, want to get back to this um, to the world, to Naples, and they all are eager to help and share what they've learned and done. And FGCU, there's an entrepreneur center, so we have people who come in there, we have speakers, there's mentors, these people want to be involved. And they're also very philanthropic. We have upcoming next weekend, the Wine Festival, which raises money for all the Immokalee students, students of underprivileged, they raised $23 million for this event last year. One weekend. And this is one of many, many, many um, galas and philanthropic events. I love Phil Wood. I, would, I actually spoke, I spoke at your um, event. Um, and great companies, just people who give back, people, you know, people talk about impact investing. I'm like, family held companies, privately held companies is impact investing. You're creating a community, you're creating jobs, you're creating schools, you're creating fine restaurants. The arts here are amazing, what it can offer. That's, I always said, if I can support that, that is impact investing in many ways. So I'm, I'm, it's a lovely community. There's a lot of entrepreneurship, great ideas, connectedness around the world, the network. We all know it's about good people connecting good so people. In, in a nutshell, Palm Beach, Miami, Naples. There are three words to describe each of those cities. What what what, what were the three words are for Naples? Yes. Ooh. Midwest sensibilities. Okay, that's good. That's Being in front of the doing Midwest tours. Well, look. Any questions to this esteemed panel? Yes. How, how's your foot, Andrew? It doesn't work? Okay. Um, uh, it's a Naples question. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not really sure who to answer it, so you'll have to decide. Uh, so, you know, the numbers going up in sales, you know, appreciation obviously could be bad. But the age dropping, children going to school, isn't just numbers that way. So, walking down the street, restaurants full all great. What is missing that needs to be done? Schools? Uh, what's the, not the one percent? One percent leave those people out because they can do anything they want. What's missing? Labor, schools, and infrastructure. And the labor. You'll notice that some of the restaurants are packed solid, but half of the restaurants closed. They can't get the labor. Um, yeah. And, and that's been a phenomenon since June, before, the, before Ian, uh, Ian made it worse. We've lost a lot of labor to uh, South Carolina and to uh, Texas. Um, so without the infrastructure, soon the 1% of the 1%, and she's absolutely right, doesn't want to be here if they can't get service. 
the what's the labor what? The labor's not priced out of the area. I'm sorry. The affordability, yeah, we have one development that's 54 villas starting at 389, which is the cheapest thing in town. <laughs> and that's okay, but the county has shut it down over and over again for stupid little things, excuse the expression, like you didn't have your silk fans, you had only one. We know why it's, it's being shut down. I'm sorry? We all know why it's being shut down. Yeah. I mean, it's... So, it, so... It's, it's, it's playing de defense for certain classes of well, people. Well, maybe. So I, I think it's probably inadvertent. I mean, I've been here since 1985, so uh, a lot of things have changed, but we've always had the 1% of the 1%, but we always were able to service and have the infrastructure of the roads. Uh, we've grown really fast. We've had five, five 600,000 people this year. They're predicting 8 million people coming to Florida with half of them to Southwest Florida by 2030. It's not very long. Now Charlotte County it has land and it's starting to build up. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.